verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to hear from your word this morning. We thank you for our Lord's earthly ministry and his life of obedience. We pray that this morning, through Dan's voice, we can learn from him and his teachings. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Doing some reading this week on the life of Jesus, especially in the Gospels, one writer says this, what is beyond dispute is that in the ministry of two or three years, Jesus of Nazareth attracted and infuriated his contemporaries, mesmerized and alienated the ancient world, unleashed a movement that has done the same ever since and has thus changed the history of the world. Indeed, Jesus' ministry has done that. We've seen that in Mark now play out, that Jesus at one moment astonishes and mesmerizes, and at the next moment infuriates and causes great offense. This is the life, this is the ministry, this is the message of Jesus. We'll see from what you just heard read in the next portion of scripture that we'll also cover, it becomes the, the life, the message, the ministry of the 12 apostles as they are sent out in the establishment of the early church. And really you'll see that it is our life, our mission, our ministry as kingdom people as we carry forth the message of Christ that is both incredibly attractive and incredibly offensive that enthralls and changes life, lives and at the same time offends and is infuriating. We've seen this now, and I've brought it to our attention several weeks in a row. But once again, we must remember that Jesus Christ, as he reveals himself, as his identity is made known, as he speaks to his to people, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. Christ isn't just revealing himself in a vacuum. As he does so, it, it happens as he engages people and there is a response required. As Jesus is revealed, as his message goes forward, there is no neutrality. It demands a response. And we have seen a variety of responses as we have gone through the gospel. It demands a response. Either you believe, you come, you sit at the feet of Jesus and you obey, or your response is one of unbelief. And in these texts today, we're going to see heavily unbelief, what the nature of unbelief is. 
the sad consequences of unbelief. Unbelief is a sin. In and of itself, unbelief is a sin. I think sometimes we can think of unbelief in a way that it's maybe somewhat neutral on its own, but unbelief can lead to and result in some bad decisions and some sinful decisions. As if to suggest that I could deny Jesus and his claims, but if I still try to live somewhat of a moral life, if I adopt somewhat of a Judeo-Christian ethic in life, I can, I can go about things without sinning. Now, it might be decent for society if that were to take place, but unbelief in and of itself is a sin. We all struggle with unbelief. Even those of us who have placed our faith wholly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we still struggle with unbelief. That's why it's important for us as we gather that we, we regularly pray that God would grant us faith, grant us uh, repentance, that we might believe the promises of God. That's why scripture says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe to demonstrate it somewhat is that to, to say it this way, that we struggle with the unbelief of ingratitude. That is, our complaints, our offense at the way that Jesus has worked in our lives, our, our questioning of his wisdom and his providence in our lives, our ingratitude lays bare the fact that we don't believe his promises, we don't believe his word, we don't believe that what he does is best. The unbelief of pride that I would think that on my own I've made something of myself through my own wisdom, my own talents, my own intelligence. I have elevated myself and I am better than my neighbor. I am more valuable. I am, I am worth more. I am judgmental towards others. It's the unbelief of pride. We don't believe what God's word says that blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, that we are broken vessels that Jesus uses. The unbelief of lust. Do we truly believe that the Lord has created what is true, what is beautiful? Sexuality fits into that in a true and beautiful way, and He has set a, a way around it that is honoring and pleasing to Him. Do we deny the, that all people are made in the image of God? And that as an immortal soul made in the image of God, we would be so abusive as to just gawk at someone for our own fulfillment, for our own momentary pleasure. Or do we believe that's an immortal soul, invaluable, created in the image of God? You see what I mean? Unbelief creeps into our lives in a lot of ways. And we'll see the remedy to unbelief has been the remedy that we've seen all along in the gospel of the kingdom. And that is that we are good hearers. That we hear the word of God, that we let it speak into our lives and that we believe it. So we start here, really two stories that we're going to sandwich together. The rejection of Jesus at Nazareth that we just read about and then the sending out of the 12 apostles. So we find Jesus back at Nazareth. This is his hometown. This is where he grew up in Nazareth, a small little town where everybody knows everybody. 
If you're a big city person, if you're a transient uh, person, maybe you've never been in the situation where you kind of that small town or small neighborhood community and everyone just seems to know everybody. But Jesus would have been well known. There's not much that is known about Nazareth. It was so kind of such a little a blip on the map. Uh, recently, archaeologists have discovered more about it. One r- writes this. He says, the resultant picture of this archaeological studies is of an obscure hamlet of earthen dwellings chopped into 60 acres of rocky hillside with a total population of 500 at the most. Just a little town. My parents live in in Charleston, West Virginia, which for West Virginia is a bigger city. But you don't have to go far outside of West Virginia and you're in the valleys, the hollers, and you get into some of these small little towns. Perhaps you've been driving through and you've passed Big Chimney, West Virginia. Big Chimney, you'll never guess where it got its name from. There used to be a big chimney there. Um, I look a quick little Google search. Big Chimney's population is 484 people. Town of Nazareth. It's, it's all squished into a little valley. There is not much to it. But there is a Hardee's in Big Chimney. And I can tell you, if you work at Hardee's, everybody in Big Chimney knows who you are. You're, you're a well-known person. This is Nazareth, a little nothing town. Jesus, obviously, there's a buzz around him from his time in Capernaum. Now he's back in Nazareth, speaking in his hometown, as is his custom he heads to the synagogue and he begins teaching and preaching and immediately people are astonished. They're amazed. We've seen this before. He speaks with such authority. He's not reliant on all the rabbis. He's not keeping quoting some rabbinic school. He speaks on his own authority. He has an understanding as he unfolds the scriptures. We've already seen what his message is as Mark introduces it. He goes about telling people to repent and believe preaching the gospel of the kingdom, that it is, it is here, it's fulfilled in him. And they're astonished and amazed at, at his authority. But this astonishment quickly moves into resentment. And you can see it in the progression of questions. First, where did this man get these things? What wisdom is given to him? How much mighty works are done by his hand? And then it moves into these next questions, which maybe seem honest on the surface, but they're actually quite derogatory. Is this not the carpenter? It, you know, it would be like in Big Chimney. The dude who works the drive through window at Hardee's starts declaring with great authority, like, isn't this the guy that works at Hardee's? Like, isn't this the construction worker? Isn't this the, the manual laborer, the menial task? Isn't this the carpenter? They go on, the son of Mary. Again, maybe this seems innocent at first, but in this culture, in a Jewish culture, a very patriarchal culture of that day, they would have always, always referred to the son by the father, Jesus bar Joseph. It's the son of Joseph. It's the son, even if the father were to have died, it would have been the lineage of the father that they would have named. To say Jesus, the son of Mary, is more than just to suggest the legitimacy of Jesus. They maybe weren't buying into the whole virgin birth thing. This illegitimate dude is a manual laborer. Like, 
Who is this guy? It turns to resentment very quickly. Then it mentions his brothers and sisters who are there. Not the point, but an interesting point. This really is a blow at the perpetual virginity of Mary that some people would hold to. So they ask him, and then to the end of verse 3, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. It's interesting that in these early days of of Jesus on earth, early days of the, the church, the offense, what was so offensive, which caused the people not to believe, was the humanity of Jesus. How could the Savior, how could the Messiah, how could the one who's going to make all things new, how could he be born in such a, a humble situation to a teenage girl? Why could he grow up in such a humble, no-name town? Why are people rejecting him? Why, there's so much humility about him. They were offended that someone would come and speak with such claims and authority who was a mere humble man, as they saw. It was his humanity that they found so offensive. I would say today the exact opposite is true, isn't it? It's the divinity of Jesus Christ that people find so offensive. That we would say that all things were created by his hand, for him and through him and for his glory, that he holds them together with his hands, that we exist and have our being in and of Jesus Christ, that our hope is in him, the Savior of the world, the way, the truth, the life. All of these things about the divinity of Christ are hugely offensive in this exclusivity and these claims of divinity. People are willing to accept that, yes, he was a really good teacher, maybe even a really great prophet, whatever, he has some good things to say but an exclusive claim on my life as deity? No way. Christ offends. It's interesting there as you see their unbelief. Verse 3, when it says they were offended by Jesus, the Greek word is, is scandalon. From that, the English word, we get scandal. They were scandalized by Jesus. They were ashamed to be associated with him. They were profoundly rejecting him. It's interesting as we've traced through the life of Jesus and we even see in culture today, Jesus offends everybody. (laughs) At some point, Jesus offends everyone. For those who outright reject him, he offends them all. You have in, so far you've seen it with the crowds are rejecting him. The elites are rejecting him. The religious leaders, the irreligious are rejecting him. Even among the religious elites, you have the Herodians and you have the Pharisees who are working together to destroy him. I mean, that would be like, yeah, like the left wing and the right wing working together. What's interesting is they're all offended by Jesus. They're all scandalized by him, but all for a different reason. The same is is true today as you talk to people. People are offended, they're scandalized by Jesus, and people who disagree on most everything are still offended by Jesus for a different reason. I think it is Tim Keller and his reason for God that says in our, our culture today, sometimes we're even offended for the reason that someone else is offended by Jesus. We can't even agree on how to be offended. And yet, before we get too harsh, Lord, we see 
Christ working as, again, in our own lives, in those moments of unbelief, as an offense to us. Where do, where do you find Jesus offensive? Is it his claims of absolute sovereignty that offend some people, that, it would, that they would step on their toes of, of freedom and, and autonomy to say that, that Jesus is, is sovereign in that way? Does he offend you in the providence that he has brought into your life? The idea that suffering and trial is for your good. For some, maybe it's, it's offensive in just these, uh, that it runs anti-intellectual at times, at least it feels like it does, that Jesus would be our creator. And it just feels offensive, these sort of claims of the supernatural and his creative work. If the battle on belief by hearing the word of God battle the offense that Jesus can bring. Jesus responds then in verse 4. He says, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Familiar proverb from the day. Perhaps to translate it into our time would be that familiarity breeds contempt. Perhaps you've heard that. This little town, they just know him too well. He's got the questionable background. He works as a carpenter. He's, uh, you know, the, the rest of you people out there maybe are tricked by him and believe what he says, but not us. We're smarter than that. Again, the, the application is not far from home. Familiarity breeds contempt. There is the only way our faith continues is to to come and to hear again and again the word of the Lord and yet at the same time the familiarity can dull our senses that we hear the call of Christ in our lives and we just it doesn't mean anything to us anymore we hear what Christ has done his graciousness we rehearse that Jesus Christ that God sent his son for us the, the forgiveness of sins we confess our sins and it just begins to become dull and boring we can almost become obstinate to it even more so, you get to know the other people that you're in church with. You forget that you're a sinner and have some faults, and it's sure easy to see that they're a sinner and have some faults. The minister up front, you've seen him lose his cool or ignore you or whatever it might be when he has a bad day. You get, and this familiarity just starts to breed contempt. Jesus warns people about it. He's seen it in his own home, his own family, who earlier, just a couple chapters before, thinks he's crazy. They're trying to get him home so he can be quiet and quit making such a stir. Then we see the sad result of this unbelief in verse 5. It says, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus could do no mighty work there. It wasn't that he was unable to. It's just morally he objected to do it. Morally he was obligated not to show forth the power and the glory of the kingdom for people of unbelief. This has been his mode all the way through. As he's, remember the, the parables, they're told so that those who are outside, those who won't believe and come and sit at the feet of Christ, the parables are meant to be confusing to them. They're not meant to see the beauty and the glory of the kingdom if they're not going to submit themselves and believe in Jesus Christ. 
That's why those who he's shown great power to in healings or casting out demons, he often tells them, don't tell anyone. That's the point in Mark 4, 24, that parable about the measure that we use would be the same measure used for us. It's being fleshed out here. If the offer goes forward, the, the offer of the kingdom goes forward, the gospel is preached, and you reject it, and you're offended by it, and you are unbelieving, then you can't expect God to just pour out blessings upon you. You can't expect to know the glory, the blessing, the healing of the kingdom when you reject the king. Jesus removes himself. He will not show them the beauty of the kingdom. So you have this idea of unbelief. You have this idea of offense. You see this pattern as developed in the ministry of Jesus. And what it does is it sets a template for us as we move in the next section to Jesus sending out the 12 apostles. That, that they are to have on their kingdom mission the same experience that Jesus did. That they will go with a clear mission. They will go in the name of Jesus Christ. They're sent out as apostles, sent out ones, representatives in the name of Jesus Christ. The words that they say are the words of their Savior. And they go out proclaiming, and they have power. You see that in verse 7. He began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. They go with power, but what they are to expect, just like Jesus, is they are to expect rejection along the way. They will be met with unbelief. This is the call of discipleship that we all share in. That we take forward a gospel, a message of Jesus that is both wildly attractive and life-changing and as offensive as anything can be in its exclusive claims to Jesus Christ. And that as we go and people here will see it will change lives, but more often than not, we'll be met with unbelief. Jesus gives them some instruction then as disciples, what that looks like. So Jesus sends them out two by two. Let's build an Old Testament principle that where two will go and two make the same claim upon something as witness to something, then that thing is true. You see that in Deuteronomy. So he sends them out in this way. I think there's also some principles there just of the companionship, the courage that is going to be needed, that they, they go out together that way. The ministry takes place that way, not in a solo way, but in partnership with others. And he sends them out two by two. And he commends them to his providence. As you read down through here, look at verse 8. He charged them, as he sent them out, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Just take the bare minimum. The two tunics people would wear in case they got had to sleep outside so they'd have something again to kind of cover up with. He's, you won't need that. <laughs> He's telling them, you go forward. The plan might not be clear, but you need to rely on me. I will provide. It might not make sense all along the way. You will be met with rejection. The story following this that we'll, we'll look at next time we're in Mark 
is John the Baptist being put to death. It could be that kind of rejection. And yet as you go, he promises, I will provide. And you see, primarily he will provide through the hospitality of others. Look at verse 10. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if the place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. You go into a place, receive them. Someone will receive you into their house. Hospitality was an important, very important thing then. You see it into the early church. Just the, the heightened role of hospitality for the church. The Didache is an early document produced by the church, first 100 or 200 years of the church, that kind of talks about church life and what that looked like and how it worked. And there's 16 sections to it. And three of the sections are wholly dedicated to hospitality, just to kind of show you its importance. And a lot to traveling teachers and preachers in the early church as people would come in, they were teaching and they were preaching. Here's the, role, the, the rules that would, would be you have them in your house, you care for them. The prophet, is, the prophet or teacher is not to stay, I forget, like more than two or three days. Otherwise, it starts to be freeloading and there was lots of false teachers going around mooching off people. So they would stay. If they did stay more than two days, they had to start working, earn their keep. So there's these rules about hospitality. And so as Jesus sends them out, so you're going to be dependent on me for my provision. It's not all going to be laid out exactly how this is going to work. You need to trust in me as you go forward. And you need to be dependent upon the provision of those who believe, the hospitality of those who believe, who will care for you. Then in verse 11, And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. You maybe have heard this before. It's just a common sign for them. It's, it's the idea of when a Jewish person, person would come back into their own territory out of pagan Gentile land. They would shake the dust off, get all that dust off their feet. It's the idea that you've gone, you've proclaimed your message. If they've rejected it, if they've denied it, I'm leaving and, and I've done my part. I'm not accountable for them. I'm shaking the dust off my feet from them. Again, it is starting to flesh out some of these kingdom parables about the farmer who throws the seed. Remember, and it lands where it will. And then it just says he goes to sleep and he wakes up and he goes to sleep and he wakes up. And he doesn't know where or how, but then he looks out and there's fruit. The one who declares, the disciple who goes out, is not responsible for the belief. He's responsible to share the mission, the message of Jesus. And Jesus brings about the fruit. And if they don't believe the, the, the person who declared the truth isn't responsible for that, he leaves them to the judgment of Jesus. That's what he's saying. You're going in my name. You're going in my power. You will face the same rejection that I faced. And if there's fruit and belief, it's because of Jesus Christ. It's because of the word doing its work. If there's not, then judgment rests in God's hands. All right. I have three sort of final comments now to look back, review, and make some application. First one is concerning belief. 
when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you sit and receive the word, when you are reading in your scripture, when you hear the call to repentance, there is only one proper response. Faith, belief, confess, turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Every moment that you hear the word of God is is both an awesome opportunity and responsibility for you. It's the way you enter the kingdom. It's the way that the kingdom is built up in your heart and mind. It's the way that the kingdom goes forth to unreached people. It's through the hearing. We often say that Redeemer, we try not, as our leadership, we try not to take ourselves too seriously. But we take what we do very seriously. It's a serious moment right now. You hearing the word of God. You hearing the word of the kingdom. Because it demands a response. It's an amazing grace and it's an amazing opportunity. And it's a grace that you will be accountable for. How you hear and receive. I would just, for myself, for you, are we becoming dull in our hearing? Is it just too familiar that we can easily hear the claims of Christ on our life and dismiss them? Just think, ah, it's an overstatement. It's not my responsibility. I'll go about my life. It's not going to change the way I think or live this week. Because to believe is to obey. Are we offended by the claims of Christ? Are we offended by the word of Christ? The, The... Folks here, as as the word went forward, they were to receive it. And if they did not, they were left to the judgment of Christ. Let me just encourage me, encourage you, as we hear the word, as you hear it preached, as you receive it in your own personal time, that it is not a passive thing. This is not a passive experience. You're not just consumers. You're accountable for the grace that you are receiving. As hearers of the word, to believe it, to treasure it. Your objects right now are the grace, a, a timely, specific, glorious grace in hearing the word of God. Not because I am a glorious preacher by any means, but because the word goes forward and that is what gives life. That is what brings forth fruit. That is what you're accountable to hearing. Concerning belief, let's not be cavalier with unbelief. Be in prayer. God, grant us faith. Grant us repentance. Help us to hear and take seriously both the the grace, the privilege, but the accountability of hearing the gospel week after week. So concerning belief, secondly, concerning the call to discipleship, just a couple of observations to pull out. We we already saw in Jesus as he called the original disciples as they were fishing, and there were two things. He called them to him. They would come and learn and sit at his feet, and then he sent them out. That's part of the call to discipleship. We come to Christ's feet and then we go forward as his ambassadors. And in Mark, especially in this section, as you go forward, it is a 
a partnership, if you will. One, it's a participation in the work of Christ. The Christ has done his work, and then he sends the apostles forward to continue that work. The Great Commission is going to be just that for us. It's a participation in the work that Jesus Christ has started. But it's also never just a solo act. It's never a single personality, a single person. That's part of the beginning groundwork that's laid for a plurality of church leadership. Why we have multiple elders, ruling elders alongside the teaching elder. It's a partnership. You see the hospitality as the people care for these teachers as they come in to see the truth go forward. It is a partnership in the gospel. You, me, congregant, pastor, friends, all of us together of seeing the gospel go forward. And then finally, the call to discipleship is that you are commended to providence. I think often we... We think, well, when everything lines up, then we'll be a better witness for Christ. Then we'll, you know, be more generous. Then we'll be more apt to show mercy. Whatever it might be in this discipleship, this proclamation playing out, is we just, it, we need to get everything else lined up and it all to, Jesus says, no, j- just go. I'll provide. You take the mission, you, message of Christ. I'll provide along the way. It's interesting when you think of the disciples up to this point, like it's not that these are like the elite, most most faith-filled people you've ever met. They do, they have faith and they believe and obey. But that faith is up and down. That faith is definitely not, you know, completely informed. They're still not certain about Christ and his mission. Everything's not making sense for them. They're not all king theologians. It wasn't long ago that they were rebuking Jesus. Even they have thought he's a little crazy at times. Like, these aren't like the most faith-filled, elite, knowledgeable people that go forward. No, Jesus takes broken vessels and sends them forward. One critique in one way founded critique, but in another way not, is the idea that the church is full of hypocrites. That like, how do you go and, you know, tell us about Christ when it doesn't mean anything in your life? And yes, there are hypocrites in the church, but every time I preach, I'm a hypocrite in the sense of, do I live all this out perfectly? No. If you wait until you're completely fit in order to come and worship. If you wait until you completely have it all together before you were to help someone else, to share the gospel with someone else, then you'll never get started. The disciples are an example of that. They don't have it all figured out. They've got some sketchy backgrounds. They've got some personality quirks that don't work out great. And God still uses them in a mighty way because that kernel of faith rests in a powerful God. They take seriously what they hear and they obey call to discipleship for us is the same. Then finally, the third, just as Jesus was offensive to everyone, we need to learn how to be attractive and offensive, or you could say selectively offensive. The message of Jesus is an exclusive message, and therefore it's going to be offensive. And yet, Christians should be the most caring 
and welcoming people they are that are out there at the same time. So how are we offensive and attractive, just like Jesus was attractive and offensive? The gospel is that. How are we, because we tend to go one way or the other, right? Either by personality. If you're never offensive to somebody, then for, if you're never offensive to someone in your witness of Christ, not just generally offensive because you're annoying, but if you're not ever offensive to someone because of your testimony for Christ, then you, you are not a bold witness for Christ. You're, you're compromising somewhere. If you're always offensive for Christ, again, this is Tim Keller from The Reason for God. He says, if you're always offensive for Christ, then you're not suffering for righteousness sake. You're suffering for obnoxiousness sake. <laughs> Don't be obnoxious. You shouldn't always be an offense to someone. And you can see that here. I think we can pull out a few inferences as the disciples go forward as he tells them to go with their message that it's not just proclamation, but they're also serving. They're also caring. They're ministering to people. They go proclaiming the gospel and they go ministering and they go serving. They show up not with, you know, war chest ready to beat someone over the head but they show up in integrity they show up in humility they go and they are live among the people they are with the people you see in that it's interesting little statement there in verse 10 it says wherever you enter a house stay there until you depart from there it's like okay of course like it's kind of a confusing what he's saying is don't show up in an area someone's nice and welcomes you a room you're there for a day or two and then you get to know people and there's a nicer room at these people's house. They serve better food. So I'm, I'm going over there. I'm just kind of shop. Whoever can like serve me the best, that's where I'll end up. Saying, no, no, you be hospitable back. It's not what can I get out of it. You go and you serve. And if they're hospitable to you, you stay there and you keep serving. Don't be looking around for a better situation. <clears throat> go forth with a bold, accurate message. They do so in humility, not obnoxiousness. How do we go forward? We're bold about Jesus Christ and his exclusive claims, but we're not obnoxious about the details way down the line of causes that are way past the gospel. We don't bludgeon somebody, <laughs> take the truth and use it as a weapon to beat over their head. We don't simply proclaim and walk away. We minister. We serve. In doing so, the gospel goes forward. It's, it's attractive. Yes, it's going to be offensive. Yes, it's going to be met with unbelief because of the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. But we don't need to be needlessly offensive. And so that becomes even in the life of Christ, we see it, and it becomes a pattern for us. If we're always avoiding offense, then you're not being a bold witness for Jesus Christ. If you're always offending, then you're just being obnoxious. Belief, discipleship, and the offensiveness of Christ. Might we be disciples who follow that pattern he set before us, always pointing back to Jesus Christ? And might God grant us belief and help our unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this call to discipleship. Lord, we 
are reminded that at the center of it all continues to be the hearing of the word. That as we hear it, Lord, with humility, we would receive it. We would believe. And then as we are called, Lord, to be ambassadors for you, help us to be bold. Help us not to be surprised when we are faced with unbelief. And help us to be selectively offensive, never backing down the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, presenting the gospel, Lord, that it's people's greatest need, whether they recognize it or want it or not. So in that way, help us to be selectively offensive. But help us to go forward with humility and integrity as to not be needlessly offensive. Take just a moment as you consider